0: If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me this morning to our sermon. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians, pardon me, not Second Corinthians, the Gospel of Luke, once again, Luke, Luke 22, I'm just so used to being in 2 Corinthians today, in fact, that's going to be my Sunday school lesson too. But anyways, Luke 22, verse 24 to 38 this morning, Luke 22, verses 24 through 38, Continue our series through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and just that um, where Jesus is presented as the Son of Man, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Um, Luke Twenty-two, verse twenty-three to 48. And I'll be reading the sermon uh, within the text this morning. It's a lengthy section, but let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father. You are our song from age to age. Not only uh, uh, now in this life, but into eternity. And Father, we recognize that as humanity, You truly are our song. You are mankind's song. You've always been the one who has been the source of our salvation. You have always been the one who uh, holds this world, provides for this world, uh, that You uh, keep this world from falling apart. It is You who... Loved this world and sent us your Son, and so Lord, all those whom you have granted faith to believe uh, have have you as our song. We sing your praises, we sing to your glory, and as we listen to your word now, we look to your word. Speak to us so that we might continue our song, we might continue our response of the response of our lives, that we would always look to you, that always praise you. They would always put our faith in you. They would always proclaim you because you are our God and we are your people. Thank you, Lord, uh, for you are the, 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 the true and living God. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The stories have all become too familiar and too prevalent. Nevertheless, the impact of the stories of failures of Christian leaders has a profound, continues to have a profound impact on the life of the church and hurts many in Christendom. The amazing singer... Who commits adultery, leaves her husband for another. The gifted pastor who denies the faith and forsakes Christ. The respected apologist who sexually abuses a series of numerous women. Whenever a well known Christian, and especially a Christian leader, fails or forsakes the faith, it does something to the church, it does something to other Christians, it tests us. It tests our faith. There are some who begin to wonder if the Christian faith is something worth following anymore. If that person had faith and they did that, then what worth is this faith that I have? Some start to think that they don't need organized religion. Oftentimes, they, they leave because they're abused by church leaders and they stop attending church, though they might say they still believe in Christ. Others are so disappointed that they completely leave church and Christ behind, never to enter the doors again. Whenever leaders or close friends in Christ fail, it is an occasion, it's a circumstance that may tempt us to forsake Jesus as well. And at Jesus' Last Supper, He has revealed to His disciples That one of them, one of the twelve seated at the table, one of the twelve who's sharing the very same bread, the same cup that's passed around, is going to betray Jesus. He's gonna fail in the most heinous way. And they, of course, at that time they didn't know who it was. But eventually they would realize that it was Judas Iscariot, who would betray Judas Jesus for thirty pieces of silver who would feel sorry about it afterwards, and then, instead of returning Jesus, goes off and hangs himself. And like the failure of our respected Christian leaders today, the failure of Judas would test the faith of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus' arrest, trials, as well as death, would would test their faith as well. And Jesus understands that what is about to happen to them and so he wants to prepare them. In his final words before his arrests and trials, he wants to say, this, these are his last words really to them. From this point on in the Gospel of Luke, he will say no more to his disciples as a group. These are his last will and testament to them. And he wants to equip them so that their faith may not fail in light of the circumstances that are coming soon upon them. And we too as believers and disciples of Christ who live in a fallen world where Christian leaders still fail, where there are still circumstances that test our faith, that cause us to really question whether we want to continue putting our faith in Jesus, whether our faith, we may fall away ourselves, that we need these words of Jesus. So that when circumstances arise such as those that tempt us to forsake Christ, forsake our faith in Christ, we will have what we need to be equipped so that our faith may not fail. The setting of our passage today is the moments between Jesus' last supper and his trip to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray. Judas has already left and he's gone to go betray Jesus. There is not much time. Judas is going to go because he's going to basically tell the the religious leaders where Jesus is at so that they could arrest him. Luke records in this passage the words that Jesus offers to his disciples and what is left of his time alone with his disciples. And in these words to his disciples we see three situations, three little different kind of uh, instructions and as outlined for us today we're going to outline them as three circumstances that Jesus prepares His disciples to face so that their faith may not fail. Three circumstances that Jesus prepares His disciples to face so that their faith may not fail. Alright, so let's take a look then at these three circumstances. The first circumstances that Jesus prepares His disciples for to face is when His disciples face pride, when you face pride. We find this in verse 24 to 30. Look, let's read the whole uh, all verse 24 to 30. So, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, "The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the younger, youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater?" The one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When we consider what Jesus has just revealed to the disciples in the preceding passage, that one of them would betray him, he, it is surprising to sort to of see this, um, this kind of next response from the disciples. And the response is that, it's, according to Luke, is that they begin arguing among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. Um, and it's like you kind of scratch it. How did that happen? What do you guys betray me? And then they go, I'm the greatest. How does that work? Well, disciples were young men, first of all. Let's go keep that in mind. They were young men. And, if, and you know, and we all have pride, but young men especially uh, have pride. And, and it's hard for them to hide their pride. They're often full of pride. And then when you were young men, as many of us were young men at one time. Uh, you remember how when you were with your peers and your friends, the other male friends, uh, a lot of times there'd be a lot of boasting I'm better than you. No, man, I'm better than you. I can, I'm better at this than you. I can jump higher than you. I can run faster than you. I can score a higher score on Donkey Kong than you. I'm better than you. See? That's what we used to do. Uh, and probably other more uh, grievous kind of uh, boasting. But that's what young men do. Young men argue who is the greatest. And these young, men were, these young men of Jesus' disciples were full of pride. And so they were found to be arguing among themselves about who is better. In this case, it was likely, the likely discussion resulted from the accusation that one of them was going to, uh, wanted to betray them. And so, among themselves, they started discussing, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? And then one might say, well, I know it's not me, because I've tr- I have great faith in Jesus. Remember, I walked on water. And then the other one says, well, no, I know it's not me, because remember, I've been the one that's been bringing all the people to Jesus. And the other one says, no, I know it's not me, because I'm the one that Jesus loves the most. You know, it's easy. Any one of the disciples kind of came up with the reason why it's not them because they were the greatest. They they had some reason that elevated them above the others. Sally, the matter of who was the greatest was this wasn't not just this one time dispute, but it was an ongoing dispute among the disciples. Uh, Luke records in, back in Luke nine forty six of another incident where they were discussing among themselves who was the greatest. Uh, Matt, uh, the, the parallel uh, in, in the gospel in Matthew and Mark there are other incidents where, where the disciples are jockeying for the greatest for, for the positions to the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom we had, Jesus had to respond to them back in Luke with, by simply rebuking them all by, with an illustration of a child that you need to have faith like this child we see in the disciples though uh, basically a picture of ourselves if we're honest you know, we, sometimes we, we look at disciples like, no, we're not. We'd be like, but the, we exactly, we would be just like that. We are prideful people. And we, we particularly are prideful people when we hear about other people's sins. We go, oh, no way. I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. Huh? And the temptation is, we might not say it outright, but maybe our minds are thinking, oh, the fact that we say, I can't believe they did that. Because we believe we wouldn't do that. That's the implication when we say that. I can't believe it. They did that. Saying that we, I don't think I would do that. Jesus told them that one of them was going to betray him. Each one started thinking that because of how great he was, it couldn't be him. But rather the fact that they dwell in the flesh. That these men were, though they had faith in the Lord, they, they still were men of flesh. They, we still have, that, uh, we still have that, sinful, that sinful nature which dwells in the old man that's part of us. And so it means that in the right circumstances, it could be us. As Paul Ryan warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Jesus sees through the hearts of men, all hearts, and he sees through the disciples' hearts, and he sees pride manifesting as they're arguing over who's greatest. And he reproves them by contrasting for them the kind of leaders that are around the world, because he's going to call these guys to be his apostles, to be leaders. And he wants them to know the difference between Gentile leaders and kingdom leaders, the world's leaders and Christ's leaders. Verse 25, he points out the leaders of this world. These are what the world's leaders are like. These are, these are, they're first of all characterized by lording it over others. He's, in verse 26 to 5 talks about how these, uh, benefactors, not only do they like to lord it over themselves, but they gave themselves special titles to make them feel good, like they're, they call themselves benefactors. The idea is that they're a blessing to the world. They're the ones who help the world. We get this idea of public servants from this, right? Government leaders are supposed to be public servants supposed to be beneficial to the world. But although in reality, most government leaders, even then as well as today, often use their authority to benefit themselves. They're benefitors rather than benefactors. And Peter would reflect Jesus' words here in his in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5 3, he warns the, the elders of, of the church, he says, Beware, don't be those who lord it over those allotted to your charge. Don't be like the worldly leaders, essentially, but instead be proved to be examples to the flock. Jesus contrasts the world's, the world's leaders with kingdom leaders, Christ leaders. And he says, so, He reveals it in verse 26. While greatness in the world is characterized by domineering authority, you do this, you do that. I tell you, I'll make the decision, and here's how you need to conduct yourself. Greatness in the kingdom, the leaders in in Christ's kingdom, are characterized by sacrificial serving. If you want to become great, Jesus says, you must become like the youngest. And in those days, the youngest were those who would respect and submit and serve those who were older. It was a position of humility, and he says, "If you want to be a leader, then that is you want to be first. Then you must become like a servant." Jesus says, "That's our Greek word diakonos, from which we get deacons and deaconess. There are many deacons, deacons in the church who are servants. They are servant leaders of our church. They're exem- examples of service to the body of Christ." You now, I was encouraged this week just to see the servants in this church. Uh, here we are at our, we, uh, this weekend. We've, we have an opportunity to have an indoor service, and a lot of things need to get done. But I was so encouraged by these two older gentlemen, particularly, that just said, "You know, I'm, I'm going to show up." Uh, guy has to travel an hour uh, to get here, but he comes out early so that he can run our AV. Another guy says, "I'm going to come, and I'm going to come," and he's an elderly guy too. He says, "I'm going to come, I'm going to come clean the building." This is the work of. Ought to be the work of younger men. And these older saints, many like them in this church. Many in this room. Encouraged by them. Body of Christ is to be led by servant leaders. A servant is one who willingly ministers and helps others. A servant is one who considers others' interests as being more important than their own. And Jesus, in fact, brings this home with an illustration in verse 27. He says, to ask them a question, who's greater? He gives us an illustration: The one who reclines at the table, so it's a picture of a dining table, a dinner, a banquet. The one who reclines at the table really reclined because that's how they ate back then. Or the one who serves at the table, the one who serves the food to those who are reclining at the table. In that culture, as well as our culture today, the one who reclines at the table, the one who is being served, is usually perceived as the greater what person, the greater uh, the, uh, one than the partic- than even than the one who serves the table. But then Jesus busts out and he says these profound words. Having asked him the question, their mind saying, "Well, the, yeah, the one who reclines to him. And then say, Jesus says, "I am among you as the one who serves. I am the one who serves you. What does that say?" There, in our world, the world says the one who reclines that 's the greatest, but Jesus says, "But here you are following me, and i 'm serving you. What does that say about the leaders that Jesus Christ looks for in his church? If you recall that, according to John thirteen jesus had it was was in his main, manifest this Amazing picture of service when he, at the beginning of the meal had taken off his outer garments and he put on the apron of a servant. And then he began to go one by one to each of the disciples and wash their feet. A job that was normally given to servants, to slaves. But that's what Jesus did as an example to them. And that picture would have been in their minds as Jesus spoke these words, I am among you as one who serves. If the Lord serves, then greatness in His kingdom is to be like Him. A servant is as well who serves, who washes the feet of other disciples. On a very separate but parallel occasion, uh, Jesus punctuated His instructions with these words in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And for all of us who follow Jesus Christ, and for those of us who want to be great in God's kingdom, who want to be leaders in Christ, Christ's church, we must remember that if our, if our Savior came not to be served, but to serve, then we ought to be people who seek to serve in humility. The reason the greatness of the kingdom of God is characterized by sacrificial serving is because the King of this kingdom, Christ, is the perfect example of humble servanthood. Now, having given this reproof to them, he does, he does lead them with some encouragement. He says, uh, you know, they might say, Well, do, are we gonna have to serve all the time? We'll always be serving others. Well, there's a there's a sense that even though as they serve, that there's going to be a reward for them. In verse 28, he, he gives them encouragement, he commends them. Verse 28, he commends them first of all for standing by him through his ministry. You've been those who've been with me. You've stood by me, you've gotten my back. He, and he promises them that one day they will all sit at his table in his kingdom. Can you imagine sitting at the table of a king? You go to, uh, I don't know if you ever go to cruise ships, you know, or something like that. Uh, I mean, that's probably the kind of an example of this. Sometimes there's a captain's table, you know, where the captain sits, right? That's where he takes his meal. But if you were invited to sit at the captain's table, it would be a great honor. And that's just on a cruise ship. But the king of the universe, the king of all heaven and earth, the king who's going to reign for eternity is going to one day invite these men, these 12 disciples, so that they will sit at his table and eat. And then what's more, he says, you're going to, they're going to judge and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Not only does Jesus here teach that there's going to be a future earthly kingdom, but also a future for national Israel, for Israel, the 12 tribes. The disciples are going to be great leaders. They're going to be used mightily of the Lord in the, as the ch- church begins. And, but their reward awaits them, not in this life, it awaits in the future. Until then, the disciples must guard against pride by remembering that they are to be servants, that they are to be humble servants. In the ministry, there are many times that pride crops up in different ways. When we think that I'm better than someone else, when they, especially when they fall, I know better than someone else. My way, my decision is the best way, best decision. We ought to do church this way. No, we ought to do church this my way. I know better. My idea is better than your idea. My teaching is better than your teaching. My faith is greater than your faith. My love is more. In many ways, uh, probably we may never boastfully say it, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, We've thought these thoughts. And it, and it usually comes especially when we see other believers, other leaders fail. Other Christians fail. In, in our pride, we often have an oversized view of self. We forget that we who we, are we before the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, we are saints, but we are first sinners who have been saved and sanctified and gifted for service, not of ourselves, but by the grace of God. It's all His gift to us. None of us, these were not because we earned it or deserved it or it was innate to us. These are all gifts to us from God. The fact that I still stand here not fallen is because of the grace of God and that keeps us that these thoughts keep us with the proper understanding of ourselves and keep us humble and reminds us that we ought to be like Jesus and serve when you face pride Jesus prepares disciples not only to face when they face pride but he also gives them a second circumstance which they are pre equipped for is when disciples when you face failure that's our second point. When you face failure, there are going to be times not only when others fail and you have pride, but there are going to be times when you fail. You're going to fail in the Christian life at one time or other, And somewhere you're going to fail terribly. We see this in the life of Simon Peter. Verse 31 and 34, Jesus uh, turns his attention to Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you when once you have turned again strengthen your brothers but he said to him Lord with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death and he said I say to you Peter the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me Jesus addresses Simon Peter directly here. He says, "Simon, Simon," the repetition of the name calls him out for particular attention as well as concern. Peter was often the spokesman of, this, of the apostles, and even in these words, though he's addressing Simon Peter, he's addressing him in, the, in, in a sense in the context as a leader among them. He's addressing all of them. Peter would become eventually even the leader in the early church. It would be his sermon in Acts two that would be so instrumental. In bringing many to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it would be natural for him to think of himself as the greatest among disciples. Certainly, if you were Peter, you probably would think the same. But that evening, Peter would experience the greatest failure of his life. And Jesus wants to prepare him for it. In verse 31, Jesus reveals that Satan, he say, tells Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. To sift you like wheat this is actually the picture. Actually, the pronoun you, sift you, is actually in the plural. So while he's addressing Simon, he's actually telling all disciples that Satan has asked for permission to sift all of you disciples like wheat. The picture here is of sifting wheat. And maybe you're probably familiar enough with it. It's oftentimes wheat would be uh, when they harvest the wheat and they, would t- they needed to separate the chaff from the wheat. They would put all the wheat on a large kind of uh, uh, thing and, th- and they could just kind of shake it. You would shake it real hard and sometimes you would kind of you know, do certain motions like a walk. Kind of, and just to get uh, some of the light things, the chaff, to float up so that the wind would blow it away while the heavier wheat grains would stay in the, in the container. So Satan wants to sift you, shake you. He wants to stir you up. That's what the picture Jesus reveals to the disciples. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, to shake you up, to see what you're made of, to show in in Satan's mind, to show that you're simply a sinner, weak, feeble, frail, ignorant. Reminds us... This, this testing of, of, of Peter reminds us of, of Job's testing. Remember in Job chapters 1 and 2 when Satan sought permission from God to test him. And Job was a blameless, upright, righteous man fearing God. That, he, was, he was that kind of guy. But even Satan says, no, he, he, just, he only believes you and, and follows you because you give him all these blessings. Let me, let me test him. Let me take it all away from him. And I know he will curse you. That's what Satan's probably wanting to do here. A similar situation. He says, I know if you know, let me just touch Peter right now. Let me sift him and we'll see if he, these, these, uh, him and the others are anything. They're going to show themselves to be just like Judas. He wanted to show them, the accuser wanted to show them for the weak, fearful, untrusting followers that they were. And they often were, weren't they? Just imagine if Satan went to the Lord God and he says he wanted to sift, ask for to sift you like wheat. What would be revealed in your life? Jesus knows that Peter as well as the other disciples are going to fail. They're going to fail when Satan sifts them. They will flee when the shepherd is struck. But notice what Jesus says in verse 32. Though Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I have prayed for you. Jesus prays for Peter and that is, by the way, this uh, pronoun here, you, is in the singular. He says, but I pray for you particularly, Peter. Specifically for Simon Peter in the face of, of Satan's sifting. Jesus prayed for Peter that, why did he pray particularly? That your faith may not fail. That Peter would not forsake his faith in the Lord Jesus. And if, if Peter, if there was a man who was demonstrated mighty faith, it was often Peter. We already talked about how he walked on water. But the greatest manifestation of Peter's faith, at least in this in the gospel, was found in Matthew chapter sixteen, sixteen verses fifteen and following. When Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, "Who do you say that I am?" Peter, as of course, was, as the spokesman, answered. Other people might say who you are—that you're this person, that person, this person—but I say that you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That was a a manifestation of Peter's faith in Jesus, that he is the messianic king. He is the son of God, divine. And Jesus revealed that, oh, Peter, you're so smart. You figured it out. no Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It's not something that you figured out on your own, but it's because the Father revealed it to you. The Father gave you faith to understand that. And at that, Jesus promised that Peter's confession, and you are Peter, but upon this rock, a different word for rock, this rock of Peter's confession, this faith in Jesus Christ as Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, that would be upon which Christ would build his church. Though Peter would be sifted and would fall away that night. Would would fail Jesus that night. Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. That his though in moments, single moments, we may turn our back on Jesus, but he knows that in the long term, that one's faith, which is a continual faith, will not fail. And there are going to be times in our life that at the moment, in that particular moment, that particular stress, that particular pressure, we will fail the Lord. We will fall away from the Lord even. We will even walk away and maybe we do even think we're going to come back? But if our faith is a genuine faith, if it's a faith that's from, not from flesh and blood, but it's a faith from God the Father, your faith will never fail. Your faith will cause you, will draw you back to to the Lord, that it will not fail because Christ is just as he intercedes for Peter, interceding for all of us still. Jesus then exhorts Peter, that I pray that your faith might not fail. He exhorts Peter that when he has turned again to strengthen his brothers... The implication of Jesus' words is that Peter not only is going to fail tonight, but he's going to turn again to the Lord. He's going to turn back. To, he's going to return. He's going to repent of his, falling, of his failure. He would turn back to the Lord, and then Jesus tells him, and I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers. Strengthen these other guys. Be the spokesman that I, I've made you to be. And use your words to encourage the church, to build up that church. And Peter was used in that way. You know, as Christians, uh, I, there are going to be times when we, when we fail Jesus. I remember teaching uh, this truth a lot, often to uh, our high schoolers, way back when we when used to teach high schoolers. Because I realized that high schoolers, you make a lot of dumb mistakes, you know? Maybe we make dumb mistakes as adults, too. And I was telling them that, you know, you're going to blow in such a way that you can be so embarrassed. That if your sin came out, you would not want to show your face at church anymore you're going to be, do something that's so shameful to you and to your family that it's just it's just easy to simply to say walk away and just say oh, i don't believe in jesus anymore you're going to do something where you are going to completely and totally blow it in the eyes of everyone else but no that the Lord will always show grace to you. Know that this is not uncommon. Know that this is actually it's actually surprising when you don't blow it. King Solomon Ecclesiastes 7.20 the wisest man outside of Jesus Christ who ever lived wrote these words Indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. We all sin. But if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, though you blow it, though you fail Jesus at times, though you may fall away from Jesus at times, your faith will not fail. You may temporarily hide in shame. You may flee from Christ and His body, just like Adam and Eve, flee from God in the garden. But nevertheless, the Lord God, if you belong to Him, if He's given you faith, He will keep seeking you. He will keep drawing you back. And the faith that He gives will never fail. Praise the Lord. Never fail, and hopefully, if there will be a time in your life, hopefully sooner than later, you will eventually return to the Lord, even after you've failed. That you'll realize that the the the, what you've done is a sin against God, and that you know that if that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them to Him, and if the Lord God forgives our sins, then then you're going to trust that the body of Christ is going to forgive you of your sins too. When you do, when you return, you will have learned a very important lesson. You will learn the lesson of God's grace. God's grace is abundant. It's not just amazing. It's abundant. It's overflowing. God's grace is immense. it's, it's, It's infinite. He shows grace upon grace to everyone who turns to Him in faith. And when you know the power of God's grace you'll be better equipped to strengthen others when they fail. Isn't that right? Why are parents so good in shepherding their children? Because they made a ton of mistakes. They may learn from them. They've learned the grace of God. And the best parents point to their children, they don't be surprised when their children disobey. That's just what sinners do. But that they point them to the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. Sadly, even as Jesus, Jesus has revealed all these truths to Simon Peter, Peter kind of misses Jesus' point. He says, oh, I pray for you that, when, that that your faith may not fail. And when you return, you're going to strengthen your brothers. Peter should, could have, if he was submissive to the Lord, he trusted the Lord, he could have said, Lord, I can't understand it, but I, I will, your will be done. You know, I'll, I will do my best. I will trust in you. But despite Christ's word, Peter refused to accept what Christ had to say. And he passionately states, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to to, to death and to, pr- to prison and to death. He has a sense that there's going to be a conflict coming out. He knows that Jesus is, is at odds with uh, the religious leaders. So he knows that they're trying to get him. And so he knows, he's willing to go to prison. I didn't want to think about that. Boy, that's a, there are times when when... when followers of Christ have to go to prison. I keep, let's pray for Pastor James Coates out in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, who was arrested because his church his church dared to open their services indoors out of their clear conscience before the Lord. You may not agree with their conclusion and how they chose to get but I think we would all agree that before every Christian ought to have the liberty to have a conscience before the Lord to conduct themselves in the way that is in obedience to God and over man. Pray for the pastor James Coates. He's still in jail because they have services that worship Christ. Anyways, Peter's temp- Peter's here his devotion is, is like that he, he said I'm ready to go to prison I'm ready to die for you and we think that's, that's kind of commendable actually but what we actually find here is, is again for Peter a prideful confidence in his ability he thinks that he's not going to fail he's saying to Jesus I think I Peter, Jesus you might say that but you know I think I know myself better than you do and I'm not going to fail I, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to die for you Jesus and well he will but uh, not at this time not this night Peter has this again an oversized confidence in himself. he thinks that he 's better than the others. The others may flee, and actually in parallel, the, all, if all others fall, fall away, I will not fall away. He says he thought of himself as the leader among disciples, perhaps he thought of the, of, of the times that he walked on water, his mighty faith when Jesus commended him for his faith uh, of his profession of faith in Jesus as the Christ. And yet the reality is no ability of man, no experience of man can prevent a man from forsaking Jesus in the right circumstances. We will all fall in the right time, in the right place, in the right circumstance, the right temptation because all of us dwell in the flesh. Only the grace of God prevents us. Only the grace of God, it's not our efforts, but it's the grace of God that holds us and prevents us, keeps us from falling. Peter thought he would not fall away, but Jesus' words reveal an even more shocking prediction prediction about Peter. He's not only going to fall away, he's going to run away from Jesus. uh, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny Jesus. Three times, in fact, before the morning, before the rooster crows. The Greek verb for deny, as well as the number of times, indicate the severity of Peter's denial of Christ. He even swears a curse upon himself. Lord, may I be a curse if I actually know that man, he says in in the other Gospels. He will deny Christ utterly. He will not just deny Christ once, but he will deny Him three times. And Peter we see is just an example of some of us, many of us, in fact myself particularly, just a man who is filled with self-confidence and pride. Sadly, dangerously, the church looks for such men to be their leaders. The world looks for such men to be their leaders. We want leaders who will be confident, self-confident, people who will have pride, people who will have confidence in their ability to accomplish the mission, to accomplish the task, accomplish the purpose, and they will be in those who have a... The, the, such confidence that people will say I can follow him because he has such confidence in where we're going and where we're heading, and how we're going to do what we're going to do he has a plan I'm, and, and, and so, it's so good I'm going to follow that plan we look for men who have confidence saying I can do it better I know a better way so follow me but the problem with self confidence is that it is often rooted in pride And oftentimes it's a veil for foolishness. And God, in His church, only wants to use humble men, humble women, humble servant leaders who accept and learn from their failures. God only wants to use humble men and women who have have confidence, but their confidence is not in themselves, but in Christ. God looks for humble people. First Peter 5.5, uh, Peter would write again uh, about this this theme. He says, "All of you." He writes to the younger man, He writes to the older men, and he says, "All of you, whether you're younger, whether you're older, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the gr- proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to them because why? Because though you're you may be leaders in the church, though you may be not leaders, it doesn't matter. If you're followers of Christ, there'll be times when you fail." You need to have humility as leaders and know that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail, but God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Peter had learned by 1 Peter 5, Peter had learned from his failure and was used of the Lord to encourage many saints, not only in the early church, but through his, his two epistles. Jesus then moves to prepare Peter and the disciples in one final circumstance. And that final circumstance found in verse 35-38 is when you face rejection. When you face rejection. Disciples of Jesus Christ are going to face times of rejection. And those can be times, especially when they're strong, when persecution is great. It will be times when you're tempted to fall away and fail, and you just say, "It's not worth it. The cost of following Jesus is not worth it, and I'm going to go back to my old ways." This passage teaches this, but it's interesting because this passage only found in Luke. This is just a, a, a it's a it's not found in Matthew, Mark, or John. Only here. Let's read verse 35 to 38. And he said to them, Now he's talking again to the, to, the tw- to the eleven that are remaining, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has a sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, "Lord, look, here are two swords." And He said to them, said to them "It is enough." As Jesus prepares his disciples for his death and, and their coming rejection, he indicates and he reveals it by uh, t- indicating a change in the, their practice as those who will go out on his behalf they were his apostles so they would be sent out on his behalf to go be his representatives on earth they would be his like his his uh, his uh his his representatives and verse 35 he reminds them how when he sent them out the first time uh, back in uh, Luke chapter 9 when he early sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of god with, he told them to go out he sent them out without having any provisions at all he reminded them i sent you out with you know, Did you have to take anything? You didn't have to take a money belt? You didn't have to take a bag? You didn't have to take any saddles with you? Just whatever you had on you at that moment? And did you lack anything? He asked them, and no, they did not. They had no lack. Why? Because as Jesus' apostles, particularly at that part of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry was so popular, everyone was looking for Jesus. And if Jesus' apostles came into your midst they, these apostles were treated with the same respect and reception as they would have Jesus Jesus was so popular then that his disciples were received and provided for abundantly but then verse 36 Jesus says but now it's going to change he says but now if you have a money belt bring it along if you have a bag bring it along if you have, don't have a sword go sell your coat and get a sword these are just simple these are some instruments that you would have when you traveled uh, not uh, quite common to, to have money to hold your stuff as well as uh, a sword for protection against thieves and robbers In contrast then to the previous instructions now disciples would have to provide for their own provisions they had to bring their own stuff they had to pack their own bags They could not count. They could no longer count on others providing for their needs, as they served as Jesus' apostles. What is going to change? Why the change? Jesus explains with the with the phrase in verse thirty seven. For here's the explanation. This is why your conduct, your practice, is going to change in the ministry. Where you now have to provide for yourself, because for I tell you that that which is written must be fulfilled in me, and it was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus twice emphasized here that Scripture has to be fulfilled, that there's going to be a change and it's going to be the fulfillment of Scripture. And it's this fulfillment of Scripture that is centered on this particular one little brief statement that he says, that this scripture has to be fulfilled, and he was numbered with transgressors. Of course all of scripture is going to be filled in Jesus but Jesus points out here that this particular verse is going to be fulfilled very soon. This verse, this little phrase actually actually taken from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12. Isaiah 53 and 52 is, is that should always ring a bell in our minds because that is the the most famous of all the servant songs in Isaiah. It's the fourth servant song. It's that one that it is the gospel in the Old Testament essentially. You want to share with the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone in the Old Testament, you, you turned Isaiah 52 and 53. That's, that's the most powerful picture of what Jesus did for us. But it prophesies concerning the Messianic sermon. I want to give you that whole verse in totality. There, the Isaiah writes, it's God is speaking um, of the Messiah, therefore, or of his Messianic sermon, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of the many and interceded for the transgressors. This verse is a prediction at the end of this fourth uh, uh, servant song. It's a prediction that Jesus would be exalted. The Messiah would be exalted one day. He would be given a portion with the great. He will be able to divide the, 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 the treasures, the booty with, with the, those who follow him. But this verse, this is a prediction of his future exaltation as a result. Of his death, essentially. It's his death that makes him exalted. It's a, it's a death because he poured out himself to death, it says. It's a death that, first of all, was a voluntary death. He, he poured out himself to death. It was a humiliating death. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's our phrase that Jesus quotes. It was a substitutionary death. He bore the sins of many. He, he bore the sins. He didn't die for his sins. He died because of our sins. And it was a redemptive death. He interceded. He stood in the place. He, he did something for those who were sinners. The very transgressors that He was numbered among even. The very transgressors who stood before Him and hurled abuses and, and crucified Him and betrayed Him. Those transgressors. The righteous one, the servant, would justify the many through His death. He would save many through His death. And Jesus quotes this phrase in verse 37 to indicate not only His death, But particularly in the change in how he would be treated. That from this point, at this point, he had become in, remember he just rode in on a donkey in the triumphal entry. entry. He was the most well-known, well-respected man in all of Jerusalem. Even at this point, the crowds were with Jesus. But this night, from this night on, something will change. And instead of being a Savior, Christ, Messiah, He will be, a, in the eyes of people, a sinner, a transgressor, a criminal. And the difference of people's perception of Jesus, that they're going to consider Him, number Him among transgressors, is going to be, change the way that they, that they will then treat His apostles. After his trials, remember it is the crowds who once were crying, crown him, basically. Hosanna to the Lord, or which turn and shout, crucify him, crucify me, the, that that lowliest form of death in the Roman Empire, the most cruel kind of death that was reserved for the lowliest of people, the lowliest of criminals. Jesus, when He was hung on the cross next to two other th- two thieves, was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus says that this must be fulfilled. And Jesus then, because of His rejection, is preparing His disciples for their rejection. And this is how they treated me. This is how they consider me. Then they're going to number you as criminals. They're going to number you as those who deserve to be crucified. They're going to have to provide, and that's why they will provide. Have to provide themselves because they will find few in the world who will receive them. And sadly, though Jesus has made it quite clear, the disciples miss Jesus' point clearly. Again, they miss it. They think he wants them simply. Their focus is like when he tells them, "If you don't have a sword, go buy one." Oh, they think. Uh, Like young men do, probably. We're going to go battle now. They're thinking, the kingdom is coming. Let's go get our swords. Let's go kill everyone that's opposed to Jesus. And let's crown him as king. And they said, here, we got two swords, Jesus. And Jesus, in a a very uh, dismissive way, said, it is enough. He doesn't even try to... The time is is, is short. In fact, Peter would use one of those swords to, and we know that Jesus is not, the point is not that he wants them to all get swords so they can fight for him, because later on when Peter cuts off the, the ear of the, of the high priest's servant, Jesus tells him to stop that. Don't you know I can call a, king, a legion of angels right now? But he doesn't, and he heals that servant. He, he, he has not called us to, to fight flesh and blood like that. Our fight is a spiritual battle. The saints, those who follow Jesus Christ are, def- are in a battle, but it's a spiritual battle for the souls of men and women that they might come to repentance and saint- to be delivered out of the enemy who is Satan and sin. These disciples would eventually learn that they, will, that they are th- this truth. At this moment they are ready for war, physical war, while Jesus was ready for the cross. But one day, when they received the Spirit, they would remember Jesus' truths. They would understand the significance of Christ's words, and then they would be ready to fight the good fight. When believers, you and me, when we face rejection for our faith in Christ, it does a number of things to us. Different people respond in different ways. But oftentimes, especially when we face rejection from the ones we love the most, from our family, from our parents, our children, or even our spouse, it, can really, it really tests our faith. It makes it quite difficult. It may lead us to even consider falling away from Jesus. And especially if rejection for our faith may lead to our death. And much of the early church experienced that. Faith in Jesus Christ would often lead to their deaths. But when we remember that when the world rejects us, it is not because they reject you, it is because they reject Jesus. And this is exactly what the scriptures foretold. And you can believe. You can either you can hold on and by your faith, hold on to the promise of God, knowing that this is what God has said would happen. This is what Jesus said would happen. And the world, though they reject me, they're really rejecting Jesus. But the question for you to ask is whether, as, as you are tempted to perhaps fall away or tempted to forsake the Lord, to tempted even to draw back and be quiet about Christ. Is ask yourself whether you love the treasure of Jesus more than the treasure of the world. For if you love the treasure of Jesus, then it will help you to not turn away and fall away from Jesus. Again, 2 Corinthians, this is almost like a 2 Corinthians message. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, Paul would write these words But we have this treasure. It's the treasure of the gospel, but it's, treasure, really, it's, it's the treasure of Jesus Christ. In earthen vessels, we're just clay jars. We're clay pots. But we have this treasure in us, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's how, this is what God gives us, the treasure of the gospel, uh, so that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God's power will be manifest and not our power. In verse, in verse 8, uh, Paul writes, We are afflicted in a way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body of, die, of the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You see, as disciples, as servants of Christ, all, we're always going to be experiencing afflictions, persecutions, despair, etc. But yet, remember that we're not crushed, we're not forsaken, we're not destroyed. Yes, we're, we're suffering because Jesus suffered. We're being persecuted because Jesus was persecuted. We're being rejected because Jesus was rejected. But at the same time, we do not lose hope because we have the life of Jesus in us. And that gives us hope. Though we, are con- we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. That we live and we endure persecution so that others might live. So that our life might be shared with others. So that they might have life. That they might live. Brothers and sisters, we may, we may die for Christ. But let us, make sh- let us make sure that we also live for Christ and tell others about Christ. So that they too may come to have the life of Christ. That's what, And that is in the face of rejection. Man, that's that's our charge. In serving the Lord, as we conclude, there are going to be times and circumstances when you and I are tempted to fall away from the Lord. I tell you in ministry, can I be honest? There have been several times throughout my ministry I just thought, I I just want to quit being a pastor. I just want to quit. I just want to resign. I want to just walk away. I want to go spend time uh, with my family. I just want to go out and just stare at the ocean and do whatever I do. There have been times, I'm sure maybe you've had times like that, when you just want to run away. But because of Jesus and the faith that He gives, because we have the Word of God, there are all these truths that that He keeps bringing back to our mind, truths like the ones we learned today, and they keep us from falling away. We do not lose heart, brothers and sisters. These momentary and light afflictions are producing in you and us an, an eternal weight of glory. We observe these three circumstances in our lives that can be circumstances that give rise to us falling away. Pride, failure, rejection. All of them are possible. And there's others too. But these three, particularly Jesus points out for His disciples. And as you be aware of them and and as you hear what Jesus speaks to each of these areas, may you... Respond with humble servants, service. May you respond on, with a, a humility that turns back to the Lord when you fail. May you respond with knowing that rejection is what, is what comes with the territory of being a follower of Christ. But nevertheless, the treasure of Jesus Christ is much more valuable to hold on to. I'll leave you with three questions just include, are you one who seeks to be served or to serve? Pride will reflect in wanting to be served all the time humility will be one who seeks to serve secondly question when you fail do you turn to the Lord you know there's a big difference between Judas and Peter they both blew it big time but Judas was remorseful he had a remorse and so did Peter but Judas never turned back to the Lord he just went and hung himself he ended his life he just wanted to escape it all but Peter, though he was shamed and embarrassed, he turned back to the Lord. He acknowledged his failures, and he confessed to the Lord, and God used him mightily. When you fail, do you, is it your practice to return to the Lord? Don't run away from the Lord. That's, that is the natural response. Return to the Lord. We all fail. There's not a single one of us that don't, that don't fail at times. And how can you ask yourself, how can your failures lead to strengthening others? Because they do. They do. And thirdly, when you are rejected for your faith in Christ, how does the treasure of Christ, how does Christ, knowing that you have faith in Him, that He is the, the King, the Christ, the Son of the living God, how does knowing that you have Him help you, comfort you in the midst of your afflictions? Because that's what comforted Paul in his ministry. And that's what's designed to comfort you and us, you and me today.